0: This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation.
1: Thank you very much. It's it's great to be here this morning. Uh, We're going to start off with a short movie.
0: were possible to learn how much medicine gets into your blood or how much air pollution reaches your lungs. Well, in some cases, researchers feed lab rats massive doses to better understand
2: what might happen to people. But a California lab may streamline a more humane way to
0: search for what is safe. As biotech reporter Mark Levinson reports, it's a new idea that grows out of old, historic, and familiar technology.
2: At California's Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, the huge accelerator mass spectrometer takes on big things, like how old is the shroud of Turin? But now it also takes on little things, like how much painkiller really gets into your headache. It's the basic principle of physics. If you want to look at something in finer and finer detail, you end up getting a bigger and bigger machine. The same technology that measures carbon atoms to learn the age of archaeology now also helps researchers advance biotechnology.
0: So We're quite excited about it. We're quite excited about seeing this applied to helping drugs get into the market faster and uh, to benefiting people.
2: Mass Spec, as it's called, offers a real-life alternative to animal studies. Critics often dispute health warnings after lab rats gorge on everything from sweeteners to toxins. Mass Spec allows humans to answer a human question. How much does it take to
0: make you sick? We are trying to work at examples that really reflect what happens to you or I.
2: That means human subjects only need a small dose. It only takes tiny blood or skin samples for mass spec to measure how much reaches organs, blood, or the brain. Researchers tag samples with radioactive carbon-14, a rare atom that's easy to detect. The accelerator then drives them around a magnetic racetrack. But on this track, carbon-14 is just the right weight or shape. Any other atoms in the sample miss the turns and crash the walls. Only carbon-14 makes it to the finish line, a detector where atoms add up to a colorful pile. As big and large and fancy as all these magnets are, this is a very dumb machine. It's just a counter. Of course, an accelerator the size of a warehouse is impractical for many industrial or commercial applications. that's why Livermore is developing this more compact accelerator that might wind up in a hospital.
0: And if you look at the scale of the smaller instrument that we have now, it's well within the size of many clinical instruments that you'll see in hospitals or diagnostic centers.
2: Mass spec only counts the amount. It still takes other tests to learn if too much or too little actually causes disease. But mass spec may give drug companies a faster way to set safe dosages.
0: And that helps us get things into people and into the real clinical situations much faster than what we can do now.
2: Accelerator mass spectrometry still helps science date old things, but it also may help open a new age in biotechnology. Mark Levinson, Tech TV.
1: And that's a brief description of how AMS works. You saw our facility. It's a warehouse, very large accelerator system. What we're doing is actually counting atoms with accelerator mass spectrometry and we're going to describe how we do that and how we apply this atom-counting machine to look at various problems in cell biology and biomedical technology. So today we're going to go through what AMS actually is, how it works, what you can do with it, how you can use it for radiocarbon dating, how old things you can how old things are that you can date, how young they can be, some famous things that have been dated, and how we can use AMS today. Specifically, I'm going to go through, describe what an isotope is. We're actually counting isotopes. Isotopes are, are elements or atoms of the same element that have different masses because they have different numbers of some neutrons. And isotopes are very, very helpful in, in doing a lot of different types of biological studies. We're going to use carbon-14 to show how old things are and use the natural levels of carbon-14 to do some things. Um, Ken is going to be talking about how you can add carbon-14-labeled chemicals to trace for either the drugs or things that are in your food. So we're actually using the same counter, but we're using it in two different ways. Carbon-14 is produced naturally in the atmosphere from cosmic radiation, from outer space and from the sun. Neutrons hit nitrogen-14. Most of the atmosphere is nitrogen and convert it to carbon-14. The carbon-14 quickly is oxidized to carbon dioxide and spreads throughout the entire atmosphere. The carbon dioxide gets absorbed into plants and animals that eat plants and animals that eat animals. So everything that's alive gets labeled with carbon-14. You keep taking in new carbon as long as you're eating. So as long as you're alive, you're bringing in new carbon-14. When you die, or anything dies, carbon-14 is no longer replaced. And then we use the fact that carbon-14 is radioactive to look at a reduction in the amount of carbon-14 to actually figure out how old something is. So carbon, everything that's alive gets labeled, everything that dies starts to lose the carbon-14, and we look at that difference in concentration to figure out how old something is. 14 carbon that's produced in the atmosphere diffuses I'm going to do a quick diffusion demonstration here is this is some air freshener raise your hand when you start to smell it it should take just a little while the carbon 14 moves around the same way it's not, it's not produced homogeneously initially it gets produced in certain places but it gets spread everywhere everywhere because the gas will diffuse and mix bit on isotopes an isotope is an element or or atoms of an element that have the same chemistry have the same number of protons and electrons I I see some hands starting to pop up what does it smell like? juice, oranges, citrus something like that so isotopes have the same protons and electrons the chemistry depends on the interactions of the electrons. So what we're actually measuring here are different masses of the nuclei. The carbon-14 and carbon-12 behave identically in any type, any, any chemical interaction. We're actually going to be looking at the difference in mass to tell the difference between our carbon-14 and carbon-12. We're actually counting the rare radioactive atoms. AMS really needs to have something that's very rare. Carbon-14 naturally occurs at one part per trillion of carbon. So it's a small amount, but it's very easy for us to measure when we're counting the atoms. So everything that's radioactive decays into something else with the release of energy. And traditional dating or measurement of carbon-14, you're measuring the decays. Uh, The rate of decay varies depending on on the different atom. Carbon-14 has a half-life of about 5,700 years. There's some radioactive isotopes have half-lives of seconds. Others have millions of years. Everything that we measure by AMS t- tends to be hundreds of years to about 10 million years, usually that, that range of half-lives. And thing to remember here that these radioactive atoms that we're measuring, are really stable over a human lifetime. Figure people live 100 years or less. Not much carbon-14 decays in 100 years. The so, important point here is that if you're doing decay counting, it's very inefficient. If you want to measure just a tenth of a percent of the carbon-14 in a sample, it takes over eight years. Nobody's willing to, to spend eight years to do one measurement by counting the atoms, we can get a 1% precision measurement in as little as 30 seconds. So by just counting the atoms, we can do that very quickly and we can get a very good measurement very quickly. And we can also measure very, very small samples. again I want to do is, sh- is show you how, how a magnetic field can, can move an ion beam in the movie so that we're the, they were talking about a magnetic race track. We actually have magnets that move the ions around and we actually select specific ions. This is a relatively strong magnet and a cathode ray tube. cathode rays are electrons. You can see how I can distort the picture, so I can distort the beam of electrons with a magnetic field. We actually can tune the magnetic field to select a specific mass and charge of the ions. And that's what we do with AMS. So here's a... sort of a schematic of our racetrack. We make negatively charged atoms or ions in an ion source. And we set our first magnet to select mass 14 and charge minus one. So carbon 14 with a minus one charge will make it around the magnet. Carbon 13 with one hydrogen will make it around the magnet. Carbon 12 with two hydrogens will make it around the magnet because they're all going to have the right mass to charge ratio. They're all going to be mass 14 and minus minus one charge. We then put a very large positive charge on an electron stripper. It is actually inside of that big brown tank in the movie and you can see it here in the picture behind as well. And it's either between a half million and seven million volts. So that's a relatively large charge. The negative ion sees a positive charge and is attracted to that charge and becomes gains a lot of speed. Here's our first physics trick. The, any of those molecular ions, or we call them isobars, molecules with the same mass that made it around the first bend, we are not stable in a positive charge state. So we strip off electrons by sending this ion beam, the negative beam, through a gas or through a thin carbon foil to make positive fragments. So we destroy all the molecular interferences with this electron stripping. It also gives us a higher energy, because when we have a posit- positively charged fragment, sees a positive potential, and they get repelled out the high energy end. The ions are moving about 50 million miles per hour as they come out of the accelerator. That's a million or mega electron volts is the energy in physics talk. We have our, our second magnet set to so mass 14 and charge plus four comes to our detector. Our detector then measures how that ion loses energy, and it's very distinctive depending on the ion. It's really a fingerprint of how it loses energy. So our detector can identify what comes out of the second magnet and gets detected by the way it loses energy, and that's a fingerprint of that particular ion. That's how AMS works. We're counting very specifically the atoms that make it into our detector. So it's vi- not many. And Remember, we have carbon, only about one part, in 10 to the 12, one part per trillion of carbon is carbon-14. How can we use this to measure or date old things? Most of you have heard of radiocarbon dating in the past. This is the first draft of the Gettysburg Address. It was written, I believe, in 1863, four score and seven years ago. We can't really do radiocarbon dating on it. It's not old enough. Really, radiocarbon dating needs things that are about 350 years old or older to do traditional dating. Because radiocarbon has a long half-life, very little of it has decayed in a couple hundred years. So we really can't tell the difference between something that was made in 1950 and 1700. There's almost no difference in the radiocarbon content. Also, there's a little bit of variation in the production. So something like the Gettysburg Address, we can't date very well. We can see if something's a forgery, though. This is a picture of a forged Mayan Codex that we have dated. Uh, Mayan Codex is a pre-Columbian, before Columbus, so they should be older than 1500. It dated contemporary for carbon-14 content, so we know this was a forgery. So somebody got current paper and beat it up to make it look old. We can't measure really, really old things either. Because uh, carbon-14 has a half-life of about 6,000 years, things older than 50,000 years we can't measure. There just isn't any, there isn't enough carbon-14 there for us to see it. So we can, we then, if we get something like that, we would just say it's older than 50,000 years old. We don't know if it's 60,000 years old or 10 million years old. We can't tell the difference. Something famous that we have dated at the lab is Kennewick Man. How many people have heard of Kennewick Man? A handful. He was found in Washington State about 10 years ago. It was almost immediately controversial, uh, not because he looked like uh, Captain Picard in Star Trek New Generation, but because he didn't, he's clearly not an ancestor of the Native American tribes that live there now. There was a big fight over his remains about who would get him because the I think it's the Native American Repatriation Act that typically if someone stumbled across a grave it's given to the, the local tribe he obviously wasn't the local tribe he didn't he didn't match uh, not because he was old but because of bone structure and some other issues so they've been fighting over who owns his body who owns the bones, and it's It continues to be in the courts. Right now there's some scientific study of the bones. Other things that have been studied or dated, you heard about the Shroud of Turin, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Iceman found in Italy, about 5,000 years old, virtually everything in Egypt that's found, things from Mesopotamia, uh, other Native American finds. Uh, If you open up, the journal Science or Nature, almost every week you will find something that's been dated that's from archaeology. Now, how are we using AMS today? I mentioned that radiocarbon production is fairly constant. In nature, if you go back 4,000 years, the production is almost constant. There's some wiggles with solar cycle variation, but it's almost constant over a long time. Atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons from about 1950 to 1963 created a huge pulse in carbon-14 in the atmosphere. And it's only the atmospheric testing that did it. So if you explode, explode this spike right here, you can see that we had this huge rise and then a decrease. This decrease is not due to radioactive, radioactive decay. It's due to the, the carbon dioxide mixing with the ocean being absorbed into trees, and just being mixed in with everything that's alive. And you can use, this is a tree ring here. You can actually look at the carbon-14 content in tree rings and see how it matches the atmosphere. So here, this, this pulse, we can actually use to date things from after about 1955 to the present. Everything that was alive during this time got labeled with this increase in carbon-14. So we're all labeled. All of us are labeled. Because the carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere, it mixed very evenly. So even though there were just a couple places where there was atmospheric testing done, the entire atmosphere of the entire planet was labeled. So now how does that come to you? Well, you are what you eat. The isotope contents of, of your food become part of you because that carbon is moving from your food to you. So your diets are actually growing season averages of of this atmospheric concentration. Molecules like DNA only really, you, you get new DNA whenever your cells divide. So the C14 content of your DNA will tell you when that cell was born, when it divided. There are some tissues that lock the isotope signature, some things that aren't alive. Your hair isn't alive. Your fingernails aren't alive. The enamel in your teeth is not alive. So the, form, the data formation of those tissues lock the atmospheric content. So you can use the concentration of those tissues to determine a time of formation. This is a picture of DNA, DNA agents of different tissues. Uh, this is someone who was born in about 1974 and died in 2004 cerebellum is a portion of the brain that's mostly neurons. And you can see that the DNA age of the cerebellum is almost as old as the person. We've also done separations of the different types of nerve cells and find that the neurons date to the time of birth. So what that tells us is that the neurons that you are born with is all you've got. You don't make new ones. So if you do anything to destroy them, you're not, you're not going to get new ones because they don't grow. Cortex is another brain region that doesn't have as many neurons, about 60%. You see that date's not as old. Muscle is about 15 years old on average. That doesn't mean all your muscle cells are 15 years old. That means that's the average of this person who was 30 years old when they died. So some of your muscle cells are turning over, others aren't. Intestine is a mixture of cells that turn over very rapidly, have about a five-day lifetime, and some that are very long-lived. Blood cells turn over relatively rapidly. They have a lifetime of a couple hundred days. So that they date contemporary. So what things don't turn over? Well, the DNA in your brain doesn't turn over, but the proteins do. So brain really, it really does turn over. The cells are not dividing, but most of the tissue is turning over. Bones. Bones turn over a little bit, but not very much. It varies with the type of bone. Fingernails do not turn over. It takes about a year to grow a fingernail from the beginning, which is actually back here, to the end. Hair takes longer. Some people have very long hair. They could take a couple of years to grow it. This uh, picture is actually from uh, a well-known person that recently cut off their hair, got this off of eBay. There's many pictures of it. So many people must have that person's hair. Uh, This is a picture of a lion tooth. The, the top here is the crown that sticks out of the jaw, and the root is what's in the jaw. And here's a, a blow up of, of the tooth. The enamel, which is the outer part, is the hardest substance in your body. That's, it's a mineral, it's not alive. So whatever the carbon-14 content of the food supply, when enamel is formed, is locked into the enamel. It doesn't change. The inner part of the tooth, In the pulp, there are nerves and blood cells. That turns blood vessels. That turns over rapidly. The dentin, which is most of it, is a lot like bone. It turns over very slowly. So, how are we using AMS today? Give you an example. Call it CSI Fremont. Now, the A's are building a new stadium in Fremont. As they're digging, they find a body. They know it's been there a while. All the soft tissue is gone. They basically find a skeleton. You have no idea of the person's identity. So doing a DNA extraction isn't going to help you. You have to have a match for DNA. How could you narrow down who this person might, might be? Could you figure out the sex of the person from AMS? Is there any way you can figure out how, old, how long they had been in the ground? And could you narrow down the age of the person? Okay, well, Forensic pathologists can tell the sex of a skeleton just from the bone structure. You can't do that by AMS, but, but there are people that can figure that out quite easily. How long has the body been there? Look for hair or fingernails, because you know they're, they're only about a year old. So if any hair or fingernails are there, you can tell the date at which they were formed. You can also look at the age of clothes. Uh, police often look at if there are any clothes or shoes what's the style that's there Uh, if they're wearing say air jordan sneakers are these the 1984 version or the 2000 version because nike knows what they made in different years so that can narrow down an age as well the age of the person you can look at the enamel in the teeth we've actually used this in a couple of police cases and have actually worked with uh, police in sweden there were quite a few Swedes that were in uh, victims of the Southeast Asian tsunami. They were out on the beach. They had no ID. And it was, you know, the waves swept in and swept out. And they found the bodies. They had no idea who they were. So they were using, were using this technique to determine approximate age of the person before they started to go to doing DNA matching. Some other research that we're doing with the bomb pulse Looking at dating ivory. There's an international ivory band from 1989. You can very easily measure the C14 content of ivory or any other, other tissues, or elephant ivory or um, walrus ivory as well. And we're, we're working with law enforcement on that. The lens of your eye. Your lens starts forming five years at, five day, sorry, five weeks after fertilization. And the proteins at the very center... Don't turn, are as old as you. So with all these rings of cells in the lens, we can actually see the bomb curve. Looking at how, what goes wrong with the proteins in the lens when cataracts form. Cataracts are sort of clouding of the eye. Why do some people get cataracts and why do others don't? So we're looking at differences in the proteins and the C14 content of proteins to get a clue at what's going wrong when cataracts form. White blood cell lifetime. Why do you need a tetanus shot every 10 years? Is it because the white blood cells live 10 years and then and then you need to get new antibodies? Or is it because they've gone through many generations and after 10 years of dividing, they just don't remember what tetanus looks like anymore? Alzheimer's disease progression. This is a picture of an Alzheimer's plaque. We've been working with, with uh, collaborators at University of Kentucky to try to figure out the connection between plaque formation and Alzheimer's disease. In the the subjects we've looked at, about half of them, the average age of the plaques was older than the onset of symptoms. So that means there were a lot of plaques present before somebody noticed that grandma or grandpa didn't remember things anymore. And actually, we start to form these plaques at about age 30. Why do some people get Alzheimer's disease and others don't? We don't know. And cardiac muscle regeneration. This is a very hot topic in stem cell research right now. What could you do to stimulate stem cells in the heart to regenerate the muscle? Because uh, heart disease and heart attacks are a very large problem, health problem in the United States. So we're looking at ways to figure out how to get the stem cells to turn on and make new heart muscle. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Ken.
0: Good morning. So we're going to change gears a little bit here. Bruce uh, has been talking to you, as he said, about what happens when you work with the natural levels or the natural abundance of radiocarbon Uh, or the natural, what what the environment adds in. What we're now going to do is talk about how AMS can be used to specifically study uh, some health uh, uh, issues by putting in a tagged chemical or a tagged material into uh, the environment or into people. And we call this a tag because it's something that we can follow very specifically. So if this room, if we turned off all the lights in this room right now and it'd be pitch black and I had a flashlight, all you could see would be the light. You'd have a hard time seeing me, but you could tell where I was because of where the light was. And that's what we're going to do with carbon-14. And we're going to pick a specific example. We're going to talk about some diet uh, issues and how we're studying it. One of the things, first things that we think about, for those of us that study uh, drugs and chemicals, is, is does it get into our body? How much of it does our body absorb? Does not everything that we eat or breathe or are exposed to uh, is absorbed. And uh, I think we just lost the uh, projector here. Let's see if we can get that back. If not, I'm just going to keep talking here for a second. Um, And so AMS has been very very useful in doing that. And uh, how many people here are planning to go out for lunch after we get done? A lot of you. How many people think they're going to have some, you don't even know what I'm asking yet. (laughs) What am I going to ask? Well, well, I forgot too, so give me a second here. How many people here, maybe you're thinking about having some cooked beef? You're not? Okay. A bunch of you are. How How many of you had some maybe meat for breakfast? A couple of you had. Okay. How many of you uh, think there are things in your diet that can be harmful? All of you. No? You don't? Okay. All right. Well, we study that, and a bunch of people do uh, study that. And we, what we can do is we can make various chemicals that we isolate or we find that we know are in your diet or our diets, and we can put carbon-14 tags in those, and we can... Uh, we can trace those with accelerator mass spectrometry. And uh, what we uh, do is, I think we're going to have a projector here in a second, because now I need to show you some of this. Essentially, what we're going to do is we're all going to become hamburgerologists for a few minutes. But I need my data here so we we can study that. I see light. We're coming up, okay. Great. So here's our, here's our subject. There's our research subject. This is a hamburger. We're gonna talk mostly about the meat, but what's gonna be important is knowing that we eat, usually eat more than one thing. So here's some cheese, here's a, here's a, a tomato, pickles, yada, yada, yada. Special sauce, whatever that's on it, and we can we can look at things that we know are formed in it. So one thing we know is that when you grill uh, meat, we can form substances that may cause cancer. So substances that are in this meat, and so they're essentially chemicals that cause cancer. We call carcinogens. So so um, we know this happens, but the question is 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 how do we know this happens? So what we tend, what people tend to do, or what we do, is we. we we take our hamburger and we take the substances in them that we're interested in and we put them in systems and give them to cells or animals or we study people and in the laboratory we can we have to give very high doses of chemicals so this is a response and this is an exposure curve here exposure means the amount of material you we eat or take in and as that increases we think that the response, which may be cancer, should increase as well. And that's shown here. You take in a little bit, you have a small response. You take in a lot, you get a big response. And it turns out for most of these studies where we look at carcinogens, what we have to do is feed a lot. So if we take our hamburger case here, in order to see tumors on this curve here in the experimental region where we do these studies, you have to give the equivalent of eating 10,000 hamburgers a day to a mouse in order to study Um, whether most chemicals, most carcinogens can cause cancer. So has anybody here ever tried to eat 10,000 hamburgers in a day? Imagine doing that for two years. That's what we do, except we don't give the hamburger, we give the chemical. And what we want to do is understand how we go from these regions down into the low regions, which are equivalent to us eating a single hamburger. That's the experimental region to the environmental. And we call that extrapolating, going from where we can collect information and trying to estimate how much we're going to get down at this lower level that we uh, get from drinking a glass of water, from eating a single hamburger. Normally we assume that that's linear or a straight line. And so we, we just adjust for that. But there are lots of things that we know can happen that make it not straight lines. There's things we call threshold phenomenon, which means that your body may reach a point where it just ignores it and there's no effect whatsoever. It just falls off. And there are situations where your body doesn't like low levels of things as much as it likes higher levels. It can handle them and you can have more of an effect at low levels. These are called non-threshold or non-linear responses and this is an issue with cancer. So what we want to do is go from these high doses where we can see lots of tumors. This is a piece of liver. These white things in here are real tumors down to regions where we would get a single hamburger and AMS can help us do that. The way AMS helps us do that is we put our tag in that I had mentioned. So here is a chemical that we know that's, that's formed in food when you grill it. it we call it FIP. And uh, it's got all these little corners here are carbons. There's nitrogen, there's hydrogen, there's things in it as well. And there's viruses in it. Uh, Norton. We'll get that here. Okay. Okay. Um, So, there are, uh, we put our carbon in it, we get rid of our viruses, and we feed this at at the level you would get from eating a single hamburger to to some system, a person, or um, an animal, or a cell. And in the case of whole animals or people, we trace it to ask, where does it go in the body? Does it go to the liver, the stomach, which parts of the body does it go to? Some of it may just pass all the way through and not be absorbed. So, if it goes through you and you can pee it out or other things, it's not absorbed. We care about where it goes, in this case to the liver, and then we can look in the individual cells of the liver and the individual components of the cell, in this case DNA. And we can ask how much of this carbon-14 sticks or is present with the DNA, and we can plot curves like I showed you for the tumor. And that can tell us a lot when we start to compare um, different organs and different uh, people and different um, uh, animals. The other thing that's important is to know a little bit about how we see cancer on the chemical level. So it's not just the tumors I showed you. There's chemistry happening within those cells. And so you have a person who is uh, cooking or making, making these uh, hamburgers, forming these chemicals in foods. Once we eat it, our body processes it, and then we absorb it. Our body processes it, processes it by a thing we call metabolism, which is a, which is a, a, a process whereby we take this, the, the chemical here, and your body changes it. So here's a nitrogen, and in this case, your body's put an oxygen and a hydrogen on that nitrogen. In another case, it's made, taken the nitrogen and put an oxygen and some other um, um, element on here. These, in the different things here, chemicals, forms of this are called metabolites, and we make those. Some of these metabolites can interact or find these molecules like DNA and can stick to them. And in this case, this is DNA here. We're showing this chemical, stuck to one of your bases in DNA. And there's four bases that you should be learning about. Adenine, thymine, guanosine, and cytosine, ATGC. Those, when they combine, make up little words that constitute our genes. So here's an example uh, of some DNA sequence, part of a gene. When this chemical sticks to it, the letter changes. It's not interpretable. So in this case, you have a C here with this chemical on it changing to an A. And that changes the word, or the context of the word, and that can cause or result in cancer. So what an example of that is, is your genes are instructions that your body uses. So this could be a gene that says, go to the refrigerator and open the door. If you form one of those addicts and you get a mutation in part of that gene, it can change one of the words to where the sentence doesn't make sense anymore. So your body doesn't know what to do. If that happens in a gene that's important for cancer... Where the instruction can't be properly read, you can get then you can it, it misinterprets it and you can get cancer, and so that's sort of the process. So how do we use AMS to do, to look at this? Well, we take our chemicals, our radio labeled chemical in this case, FIP, and you can give it to a volunteer or a person, and then at various time points after the person takes this capsule, you can collect blood samples or other sorts of samples um, like urine and other things, and uh, even even and we usually have our pre-med students collect that. Um, but you can also get tissues later, and we can look what we, at a scientific term we call phenotyping, which is looking for an effect. So you can relate what we see in these samples by AMS and, and relate it to an effect. And we follow our tag. And so an experiment here you could do is to take a rat and a person, and maybe they're the same, I don't know. You can draw your own conclusion there. We can put our radio, our labeled chemical, Cart in it, or, or some other one with the um, radioisotopic tag on here, and you can follow it through the process. We can look at the metabolites, we can look at this, and we can measure count the numbers that are present in the DNA. And so we did that. Whoops. We did that. Don't change again. Um, this is a case where we where we have showing you a series of people who all had cancer and who all agreed to take a little bit, about a hamburgers equivalent, or a chicken breast equivalent of what you would get from um, of this compound, just from a normal diet, and we compared it by doing the same study in a rat. And these people were all going to have surgery <clears throat> to have their tumors removed, and they agreed to give us part of the tumors after the surgeons removed the tumors, and we then looked for the radio, we isolated the DNA, and looked at the tag, in the, the amount of the tag in the DNA. So there's two things you can see here from the people compared to the rats. The first thing is, is the rodent had a lot less of that DNA addict in it, a lot fewer numbers of them compared to the people, roughly five to 10 times less. The second thing you see here, which is important that the people are all different. So here's a person that had a high number of those and here's a person who had a, a relatively low number of those. So there's two things to take away from this. Humans, for more of that DNA addict or more have more DNA damage from from an equivalent amount of material given to to an animal that's commonly used to test to see whether things cause cancer. We may be more sensitive to the effects of some chemicals uh, than the rodents or that people use to look for carcinogenic effects. That's very important. The opposite can be true with other chemicals, but in this case, people seem to have higher levels of addicts. The other thing which is gonna be important is something I'm gonna mention later is that people are different in how they process this. This person may have a likely, more likely chance of getting cancer than this person here if they eat 10,000 hamburgers a day, assuming they uh, don't die of something else. So the other thing we'd like to know is why does this happen? Well, we can do the same experiment, and instead of looking at DNA, we can look at the metabolites, because one metabolite may stick to DNA and one may not. And we want to know something about what's different between the animals and people we use. And we can separate those and measure those by AMS. And we've done that, too. So here's here's some data from that. And what I'm showing here is two graphs or two plots, one from from a mouse and one from a person. And this is something we call a chromatogram, which is a tool we use to separate out individual um, molecules. And so each of these peaks here, it corresponds to an individual specific metabolite. And what you can see here is, is, and both of these should line up, and so what you can see here is, this, is that these are different. There's a major peak here in the mouse, counts for most of what you see. It's not here in the human, yet there's a major peak here in the human that's only a little bit present in the mouse. And it turns out that this peak we know is one that sticks to DNA, and this peak is one we don't. So humans metabolize the compounds differently than the rodents, and we form more of the... Uh, sticky metabolites or the bioactive metabolites than rodents do. So that's an example of how we're using AMS to study the safety of chemicals and to give people information so that you can make decisions. How does this benefit all of us? Well, if we can understand what things in our environment uh, present the greatest risk, we can each take actions to to minimize our our exposure to those. And that goes both from minimizing uh, our exposure to chemicals that may harm us and trying to improve our exposure, or what we eat maybe, of things that can help us. So from what I said, who here is now not going to have a hamburger for lunch? Maybe a few people change their minds. I probably will, I'll have to tell you, but but uh, that's uh, that's the way it is, I guess. Um, so we talked about this. The other thing which I'm going to mention is, is we can also use this and come back to the fact that people are different in how they process these things, and we can start, we're, can work to try and improve how um, drugs are used to treat people. So here's an example of that. This is a drug called tamoxifen, which is a drug that's used to treat cancer. And this is what it looks like, or this is what it looks like chemically. This is the structure of it. And just like with FIP, we can put a carbon-14 on this molecule here so we can follow it. We can follow it through the body when you take it to figure out which organs it goes to, and we can follow it specifically into the tumor because you want a drug to get to the site where you need it and and there's healthy tissue this is a type of uh, picture or x-ray if you want to think of it that way of a human brain and this is a human brain with a tumor which you can see from this dark area here so you really don't care how much of a, of a drug that's supposed to cure cancer gets to the normal tissue you really care about how much gets into the tumor so you want to know that now since since i showed you people are different obviously the amount of drug may differ by the person and you want to then so you'd like to adjust the dose that each you give to each of us so it maximizes the amount that gets to the tumor. So this could be three people here. One who doesn't get very much of the drug, one who gets a lot, and some people who get an intermediate amount. And what you can do here is take this labeled material and give a very little bit of that with the uh, therapeutic drug, and the doctor can collect a blood sample at various time points after you take it, and we can establish how much of the drug is in your blood or in your tumor. And it turns out that if you don't get enough of the drug, there may be no effect. If you get too much of the drug, it may cause some bad effects, what we call the toxic effects. And you want just the right enough to kill the tumor but not cause the toxic effects. So how many people here have known people who've had cancer and had to be treated with drugs? Most of us. And you probably know that they don't feel very good when they're on the drugs. They may lose their hair. There's other problems. That's because these drugs tend to be given, everybody tends to be given the same amount. It's not adjusted to the person. So imagine what we could do if we could reduce this away from these toxic effects, the things I mentioned, and get just enough to kill the tumor and minimize these effects. That would be a pretty big improvement for all of us. And that's the thing that AMS is being used for now. New, uh, new tests are being developed right now. And the Food and Drug Administration recently issued a ruling that's going to help uh, get these sorts of tests into people faster. And if we can get, if we can get these tests or get studies where we're putting uh, drugs into people faster than we do now without having to go through all the animal studies. That has a number of significant advantages to us, too. If if it's less time till products reach the market, it's less cost that the drug companies have to invest in in testing it. And hopefully that means less cost to us and newer, uh, better drugs uh, to to people faster. And so a lot of that's happening now because uh, with with AMS. The other thing I want to mention here before I finish is, is that it's not just bad things. Uh, we're looking at how we can find things and understand what's good for us, too, at least from a cancer standpoint. So who had some coffee this morning? Quite a few people. Well, it turns out we were interested in whether coffee, say are things in coffee that may um, interact with the carcinogens and reduce their effect. And so here's a study where mice were given this FIP compound alone, this is the bar chart here, and then FIP with coffee. Here's a, a, a a little bit, and here's a lot more coffee. And you see this downward trend here. And this suggests, and this, looking at these DNA addicts again, uh, and this suggests that coffee can reduce the level of those DNA addicts, the chemicals sticking to the DNA. And so this means coffee, in combination with other things, may, for some substances, uh, reduce your risk from consuming the toxic substance. Now, number, we've all sort of been told to eat our vegetables. And we've looked at substances in salads, green leafy vegetables, and particularly a compound called chlorophyllin, which is, which is uh, like chlorophyll, which is the thing that gives it its green color, and, and asked questions about whether, whether that can reduce the um, damage done by these, other con- these toxic carcinogens in meat. And so here's another study with mice where we gave them just FIP, and FIP with some of the chlorophyllin. And you can see here a reduction from the black to the green bar graph here, of the amount of of these DNA addicts, which suggests that you're reducing the damage. And the same was true in blood. So there are lots of things in food also that can improve your chances or reduce your risk from the carcinogens that we're exposed to. So lots of choices to be made, and things like AMS are helping us understand how to make those choices. So in conclusion, What we've uh, told you this morning is that isotopes are types of atoms that can be used to study natural processes. We've told you that all of us have isotopes in us naturally. We've told you that AMS, Accelerator Mass Spectrometry, is a tool that's being used to identify how chemicals can help or harm us. We've told you a little bit about um, how natural or the levels of this radiocarbon that are in us can be used also to trace various things uh, in people and the environment. It's a very, very useful tool. I'm going to finish up here by mentioning some options, if you're interested in this type of work, of of where people like us come from. Because there's lots of different careers you can select uh, if you're interested in doing work like this. My background's in toxicology, and and people like this study the harmful effects of chemicals and drugs. Uh, We showed you a little bit about work on the drug tamoxifen. It's what pharmaceutical developers do. Bruce talked about uh, things in the atmosphere and forensics, forensic scientists. So there's lots of different fields in the sciences where you can go and do studies and use tools or develop tools like this. So I guess I would finish by saying um, study hard and uh, you'll look, keep coming to Science on Saturdays here and you'll learn more about different uh, career options in science you could do. And we will be happy to take any questions you have. And that's it. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.